0: Hello, and welcome to episode 215 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik here, as always, with...
1: Jason Rabinowitz. How's it going, Ian? It's going well, Jason. How are you, sir? You've been traveling. Yeah, not a long week because of that. It was just leisure travel out to Seattle and back for a long weekend, which was nice.
0: But you got to enjoy... the hospitality of the 737-900ER, both ways.
1: Yes. Yes. Both ways, unexpectedly. I had booked a MAX on Alaska on the way out. It ended up being a 900ER, which is exceptionally common on Alaska, so not not all that out of the ordinary. And Then a 739ER on the way back with Delta, two very, very similar experiences, but different enough to make it interesting, at least. The aircraft were only like a year and a half apart from each other off the line, which is kind of fun, but different enough where you definitely notice the age difference. So 18 months makes all the difference? Well, yeah. Weirdly enough, Delta's aircraft was a little bit older, still had the Boeing Sky interior, but it did not have the nice new space bins. It had the older, much smaller bins than Alaska 739 from a year and a half later. So You wouldn't think it, but yeah makes no, a big those, difference. Those, bins, those, bags those on board.
0: bins do make a difference.
1: Yeah, it makes a big, big difference. I mean, it didn't matter for me since I wasn't you know, in basic economy or whatever, so there was room for me. But I'm sure the people at the end of the boarding line cared exponentially more than I did.
0: Yeah, yeah, about how many bags you can fit. That's, that's true. I mean, thinking about the ways airlines have segmented the boarding process, and it really comes down to, is the plane I'm getting on one with new bins or old bins on how frustrating that process is going to be once you finally get on the plane.
1: Yeah, pretty hard to predict and plan your travel around that. But it didn't stop Alaska from begging at the gate that it's a full flight. We need X number of people to surrender their bags in exchange for Group C boarding, which at that point, I don't think it matters when you board, because you've already lost the incentive to board early. So whatever. (laughs) If you
0: check your bag, you get to walk on last and then we leave right away. That, to me, would be like – That sounds nice, uh, yeah. That I'd be okay with. Well, we've got a great show this week. we got some big order news that we will get into in just a moment. And a little bit later on in the show, Jenny Kavanaugh is – joining us. She is the Chief Strategy Officer at Cranfield Aerospace Solutions. Cranfield recently announced its intention to merge with Britain-Norman Aircraft, which listeners may know from the Islander and Trilander fame. So We're going to talk about what their plans are for the next generation or really first generation of sub-regional hydrogen-powered
1: aircraft. So That'll be a little bit later in the show. Whatever their plans are, if it results in more Trilanders out in the world, I am all for it. But I I don't think that's in the cards, is it?
0: We don't talk about that (laughs) in the interview, but I I think it's safe to say that that's not in the cards at the moment, though you never know. You never know. Let's talk about the big order news from this week. Ryanair bought a ton of 737 MAX 10 aircraft. They've ordered 150 firm and 150 options of the MAX 10, which is Boeing's largest- Max and largest 737
1: to date. Even just the 150 firm, yeah. would be a blockbuster yeah. order. Let alone 150 plus. You know what? We might come back and take 150 more. But not even, even Mike. Even without that, yeah, not even it, might it, Though it, I mean, it, O'Leary at we'll the we'll announcement.
0: Yeah, O'Leary at the announcement basically said, "We're taking the options because it's such a large order. We need board approval for all of these things, but we hope to exercise the 150 options soon." The MAX 10 for Ryanair's configuration will feature 228 seats, which as Jason I believe noted earlier in the week is actually fewer than Boeing has been able to certify
1: onto the MAX 10. Two whole seats. But not by men. seats. <laughs> for your dear passengers, your comfort, Ryanair is not going to add those two extra seats. That's <laughs> where they're going to keep the scratch cards.
0: There you go. The- <laughs> Oh, <laughs> it's true though. Let's see. Assuming certification of this aircraft happens on its
1: – I
0: think we're on the fourth or fifth revision of the certification schedule. But assuming that happens somewhere near the current timeframe of next year, Ryanair will begin taking delivery of these aircraft in 2027. It hopes to have all of them delivered by 2033 so that it can carry – And this number – I had to double check that this number was correct. By 2034, Ryanair wants to carry 300 million people
1: a year. That's like the entirety of the population of the United States, give or take. Yep. Yep. That's a lot of people. Yep. <laughs> That's a lot of people. So,
0: right now, they carry slightly more than half that. They carry, I think it's 169 million people a year. So, they want to grow at roughly 5% a year through. 2034 to find 300 million passengers per year and our friend of the show Ned Russell did some digging into where they're going to find those people and Michael O'Leary really hit it kind of square on the head when he discussed getting back into Ukraine they're looking to Eastern Europe for the largest growth Western Europe as far as Ryanair is considered is Extremely saturated. I mean, you know, find a secondary or tertiary airport in Western Europe, and Ryanair probably has flights to or from that airport. And so they're looking to go back into Ukraine. They're looking to not only re enter Ukraine as soon as the war is over, but they said base aircraft there within 12 months of resuming flights. So that was an interesting thing. And elsewhere in Eastern Europe, they're looking for growth. North America is out of the cards.
1: Oh, damn. Not going to happen. Oh, no.
0: When the order came through for the MAX 10, a number of people suggested that, oh, they could start transatlantic flying. But as O'Leary has said, and as Ryanair has said consistently, only idiots fly low-cost long-haul
1: flights. Yeah, I was going to add. It has not been a secret that Ryanair and, and the current management there has no interest in flying transatlantic. So even suggesting that seems a bit silly.
0: No, I mean the real bulk of the growth is going to come from more seats on the same flights. I mean, you're taking a Ryanair seven three seven eight hundred, which seats I think hundred and eighty and change. Mm-hmm. If I'm yep. if I'm not mistaken, and going up to two twenty eight on the same route so that immediately adds you know economies of scale for the airline more passenger volume on the same routes is really where you're going to see a lot of the growth because they said In the order announcement, 150 of the 300 aircraft are really going to be used to replace 737NGs. And the one thing that I saw, and I wish I had noted who said this, but there was an analyst that was talking about, and if anyone caught their name, emails at podcast.fry24.com, and I'll link it in next week's show notes so that we can credit this person. But they were talking about not about what the 737-10 order will do for Ryanair, but what it'll do for the longevity of the 737 MAX program. Because the analysis that they were giving was that the order from United Airlines, which is extremely large as far as the 737-10 is concerned, doesn't really matter to the wider world because United buys an aircraft and then it keeps it until the aircraft can no longer fly, and then it goes and parks it in the desert. Whereas Ryanair Takes an aircraft brand new from Boeing, flies it for as long as they feel like, and then renew the aircraft with something else. So, this huge 300 aircraft order for the MAX 10 creates by itself a secondary market for the MAX 10. So, that leads to other opportunities outside of Ryanair and Boeing skipping around joyfully for a while. So this is one order, but anytime Ryanair orders aircraft, especially orders that many aircraft, it has implications
1: outside of Ryanair itself. Yeah, it creates a whole other little ecosystem. And to be clear, Ryanair's fleet it is not all that old. It's oldest 737-800, which is – um overwhelming majority of the fleet right now. It's oldest aircraft is only a little over 18 years old. And I, I guess by the time the Max 10 comes gets around to being delivered, these aircraft will be in their mid-20s. So that's actually pretty decent in terms of Ryanair keeping an aircraft or anyone keeping an aircraft. That's pretty up there in age. Those older aircraft might be retired sooner rather than later. Those might be replaced by the Max 8 before the Max 10 comes. But it will be interesting for the MAX 10 to be introduced because it'll be by far their largest aircraft. Right now, they only operate the 800 and the MAX 8, which are essentially the same aircraft or at least the same length. So, this is going to be a significantly larger aircraft and some fleet, maybe not inconsistency, but it will add, add some complexity where they can't just swap out, like today, a MAX 8 for an 800 or an 800 for a MAX 8. There's going to be a big seating difference between a MAX 10 and a max H. so That's a complexity that Ryanair doesn't have to contend with right now. Time to figure out some sort of personal deboarding or something like that. So maybe some sort of contest where you can get people to – Maybe they can give them scratch-offs. Yeah. But it'll be nice to see a different, a yet another aircraft type from Boeing with the built-in air stairs, like the 800 and the, I believe Ooh, the Max 8 have, true. which is completely that's unique true. as far as I know on the commercial passenger side to Ryanair. I don't know of any other airline except airlines that have taken ex-Ryanair aircraft that yeah. have to- You know what? That's a good question. If you know of any other airlines that have taken
0: initial delivery with the, I guess, internal air stairs or the deployable air stairs from Boeing emails and let us know because that that's
1: an interesting bit of trivia. I think it's unique to Ryanair. I have never heard of another airline offering that. And if you're not aware of this very odd feature, it's basically – a feature plucked right out of the 737 BBJ, the business jet, where they don't need air stairs or ground support, or heaven forbid, a jet bridge at Ryanair. Their 737s come equipped <laughs> with their own air stairs built right under the L1 door. And when they are ready to get people on or off the aircraft, it deploys its own stairs because who needs to pay for ground equipment? That's just an unnecessary expense Ryanair will not be paying for.
0: I mean – A lot of the reaction to the order was people saying, oh, there's just more people on the plane and Ryanair this and Ryanair that. And I've gotten to the point, and maybe it's because we do this day in and day out, and we're extremely well-versed in what the market segmentation is on who's flying what. But to me, it's like, I don't share that opinion, and maybe I did at some point, but certainly now, I'm like, no, they know what they're about, and I feel like you have to, you might not like it, but when you fly Ryanair, at least at this point, I feel, you really know what
1: you're going to get. There is nobody on the continent of Europe that does not know what Ryanair is about and where you will end up. You will not end up in De Gaulle or Heathrow. You'll end up where you end up and you will pay for bags and you'll pay for everything. Nobody doesn't know that. That's very different than passengers flying Allegiant or Spirit, who very well might not know that you have to pay for literally everything. So that that is true that there can't be anyone in Europe that doesn't know what Ryanair is all about and what that experience is, right? There can't be. If there are, I would be very surprised.
0: But it never ceases to amaze me when there are people. I mean, it just if you look at Ryanair's Twitter account, which is a whole separate podcast segment because oh, that's of, a conversation. of what they do and how they do it. I tend to enjoy it, but some people find it off-putting. But yeah, I think that they know what they're about. And these aircraft are, are certainly going to help them do that. The one thing that I will mention before we move on from this particular topic is that as part of the delivery or as part of the order announcement, there was a question and answer period. And Michael O'Leary commented that toilets will indeed remain free on Ryanair flights. So
1: uh, that question just won't die.
0: Great. <laughs> okay. Moving on. The bankruptcy proceedings that were initiated by GoFirst in India a few weeks ago have not reached a conclusion, but we've kind of hit a milestone. The courts in New Delhi have allowed GoFirst to go under bankruptcy protection. so They've been granted protection and the ability to restructure under some conditions. The owners of the airline have had to inject a good bit of money into the airline to provide it with fresh capital that needs to remain a going concern flights are still grounded well until the 12th of May so by the time you're you're listening to this podcast it will either have been extended and the airline will remain grounded or they will be flying next day right now it seems more likely than not that the airline will remain grounded but that remains to be seen one of the interesting things that has happened over the past few weeks has been that lessors have attempted to have the aircraft deregistered off the Indian registry by the Director General of Civil Aviation in India in order to repossess those aircraft. Those aircraft, that was about three dozen aircraft split mostly into the A320neo and then some A320CO family aircraft. Those deregistrations did not, in fact, happen. And now that GoFirst has been granted bankruptcy protection or restructuring protection, that supersedes the claims by the lessors to have the aircraft deregistered. And now, they can't get their aircraft back as easily as they were hoping. So The airline still maintains possession of the aircraft, not that they're flying them at this point, but they still have them.
1: I mean, that's better than not having them. I still wish go first luck or better luck than they've been having, but this seems like a step in the right direction it's just a real series of unfortunate events unfolding for them
0: yeah it, it it's not great what is happening it's you know kind of it will be very important how the next step of the process goes to how this airline either gets back on its feet or we say goodbye. There are other airlines that were in talks with lessors to take those aircraft already. And other airlines, including Air India, Indigo, and Akasa Air, are interested in taking the slots and parking positions of the Go First aircraft that they're not being used right now because the airline's not flying. So, I mean, every kind of step of this makes it more difficult to get back on their feet but i hope that they're able to restructure and they can get back on their feet one of the things that i did want to mention was that go first has laid blame for all of their problems at the feet of pratt and whitney and pratt and whitney sent a letter to go first saying that basically we want to help but we just don't have the engines They said at this point they have 295 spare leased engines, and they're all either spoken for or unavailable because they are undergoing maintenance or awaiting maintenance. And this was the letter that was dated the 4th of May. So, as of the 4th of May, 193 of the 295 spare leased engines are either under lease, so spoken for, or in possession of customers and not possessed by Pratt and Whitney, and then quote the remaining 102 spare leased engines are currently unserviceable or either undergoing
1: or in queue for maintenance. So that's a lot of engines. That is a lot. I'm pretty sure GoFirst would also accept financial restitution here rather than a geared turbofan restitution. But it Doesn't <laughs> it does seem like they're, they're they're getting either at this point.
0: No, I mean, it doesn't seem like there's an easy solution or a quick solution to any of this because, I mean,
1: 102 engines undergoing or waiting for maintenance. I mean, that. Yeah. And we don't even know how long that maintenance takes. It's right. got to be a few days, maybe a few weeks apiece. So this is quite the backlog that really is, should not exist. Yeah, I mean, it's just not a good situation.
0: And there are other airlines and other aircraft that are certainly affected. Go Air just Go First, formerly Go Air, still Go, I think legally still Go Air. But anyway, this airline Go First just has happens to have like the perfect storm of A320neo aircraft with Pratt and Whitney gear turbofan engines operating in conditions that are more conducive to increased engine wear. And more maintenance needed.
1: It's just like the. Oh, so you could say go first went first. Yikes. Yikes. But like you said, we've beaten this issue to death. Go first is just the perfect storm of this incident. I believe I read today that KLM's president or one of their very higher ups went to Brazil to talk to Ember here about the issues they're having with the E195E2 because half of its entire E195 E2 fleet is grounded presumably due to the same geared turbofan issues. So this is initially like this isn't going to take down an airline like KLM but it's certainly looking like it might do that for Go First. Yeah, it's not good all around. Definitely no. definitely not good. No. The Paris Air Show should be interesting. Yeah, I'm going to be more careful about booking flights utilizing aircraft with Pratt GTF engines in the near term. I know that's a hot take that a lot of people probably won't agree with, but I'm going to look after myself right now and maybe stick to some classically powered aircraft. Good old CFM 56. Yeah, can't beat it.
0: Okay. so What happens if you do book a flight and the flight is canceled because something within the airline's control? led to that cancellation. Jason, what
1: happens in the US these days? Well, in the US, if you happen to be flying one of the airlines that has voluntary protections, maybe you get something. Maybe you don't get anything because that airline doesn't really need to give you anything. Very different than Europe where if there is a controllable delay and your flight is delayed over like three or four hours depending on your destination, you are due compensation and you are due a hotel and you are due a meal the US looks like we might be jumping on the bandwagon and actually protecting airline customers in a way that isn't completely voluntarily followed through and not always actually given to passengers. That sounds like a nice idea. It sounds like something is coming. So, The Department of Transportation has announced
0: its plan for new rulemaking, which is to say that nothing's going to happen soon, It's a plan to come up with a plan. There is a possibility that this could all eventually lead to compensation for passengers when an airline controllable cancellation or significant delay occurs. Things that are very similar to the EU 261 comp scheme would be offered meal and meal voucher, overnight accommodations, transportation to and from a hotel, and rebooking. There's also the prospect of financial compensation based on cancellations or significant delays the way there is in, in Europe. and This one I think is interesting that they included this, but I think it's very important. Timely customer service during and after periods of widespread flight irregularities.
1: Oh, and they're mm. also going to
0: define controllable cancellation or delay. An important step, but certainly something that they'll want to do. Yeah, that would be nice. We're a long ways off from this ever, you know, not ever becoming law, but we're a long ways off from this becoming law or, or regulation. But it's nice to see them, you know, moving in this direction.
1: Yeah, I can't imagine whatever the USDOT or, or whomever come cooks up will be anywhere near. Or approaching or exceeding what the EU 261 benefits airline passengers with, because believe it or not, consumer protection is really not our thing here in the US. (laughs) In most industries, it's just not a thing. But I really enjoyed IATA's response to the DOT here. IATA is the International Air Transport Association, basically the airline industry's lobbying group. And they had a lot of things to say about. There was some gnashing of teeth and stomping rulemaking. of feet. Yeah. They are very upset about this and they think all of their voluntary things that they do today, it's perfectly sufficient and it won't actually reduce delays. I don't think that matters. I, I would like to be taken care of when there is a controllable delay. They basically tossed in the kitchen sink here. They, they mentioned supply chains and aircraft manufacturing and part shortage and FAA air traffic control issues and all of this, it doesn't matter. At the end of the day, if there's an airline controllable delay, a mechanical thing, pilot doesn't show up, flight attendant got sick, it it doesn't matter. They'll figure it out just like the European airlines did, and airline passengers will be taken care of. It works there, it'll work here. And the mere happenstance that Flight delays, yes, they did rise in Europe, but the number of controllable cancellations did not go down. To the end user, that that doesn't matter. All that matters is that passengers who are inconvenienced by a controllable delay or cancellation, which will be defined and they'll figure out how to define that, are taken care of. And I mean, I understand that IATA has to fight back on this position, but man, it's just a, a bad look, I think. Of course it is to fight against Regulation to compensate airline passengers in a more than completely voluntary way. That's my take.
0: Yeah, I get their position, and and they're the airline's voice in this space. So they're going to say, you know, what the airlines want. And that's fine. But I do think that it's very interesting the amount of deflection in both IATA's response to this and Airlines for America's response to this with a lot of whataboutism, you know. So it, hopefully these regulations go into place eventually.
1: Don't hold your breath.
0: I certainly won't be holding it for a notice of proposed rulemaking. Elsewhere, regulation that I'm also not holding my breath for, but which is to me actually much more interesting because it seems more real at this point, is that the European Union Aviation Safety Agency has published the first proposal for worldwide, this is the first worldwide proposal anywhere for a schema for the assessment of the noise generated by EVTOL aircraft. And if you remember back to our conversation with Elon Head, who is now at the air current, and I'll put a link to that episode in the show notes. One of the biggest stumbling blocks towards the adoption of EVTOL aircraft that we talked about was the noise they make. And so this, to me, is much more interesting
1: that we're going to figure out a way to assess this noise and deal with it. That's nice. Just reading <laughs> from the release, they say the proposal addresses these concerns, describing ways to measure the noise produced and setting limits to ensure that the noise pollution is not excessive. So it's important that they, just like we talked about in the last thing, it's important that they figure out a way how to measure the noise and then take care of the noise, because if you can't agree on how to measure it, you can't really take. Solid action on it. So, this is really getting at the problem from a a fundamental level of how do you even measure noise from these things, these things that don't even exist today? Yeah. I mean, and the societal adoption of these aircraft
0: is going to be predicated upon accepting small, buzzing aircraft into neighborhoods. I mean, eventually, they only make sense if they become ubiquitous. Otherwise, they're just weird looking helicopters.
1: Yeah. And the the release from EASA goes on to say, a a good example here, as eVTOL are expected to be quieter in certain phases of flight, there's Mm -hmm. a need to allow them to fly closer to the microphone in certain flight phases to maintain a minimum signal to noise quality. So that's interesting that not even are they discussing noise measurements for these things, but they have to figure out where and when do we even measure the noise for them because they don't exist today. Helicopters, yeah, we already know. They're stupidly noisy when they're taking off and landing and hovering and doing pretty much anything. I hate helicopters, by the way, living in New York. (laughs) I wish them nothing but the worst. Go away. I hope they are all replaced by EV tolls. But it is very interesting that we have to rethink how we even measure the volume of these things because – they're different. They're just flat out different than helicopters.
0: Well, Jason, your wish that helicopters
1: might all go away
0: moved, uh,
1: I don't know, if I want to call it one step,
0: maybe yeah. a half a
1: step, I quarter mean, there, of a there, step. Are, there is an exception. Uh, Marine One flew over my, my place today. That was interesting. <laughs> I, I enjoy seeing that one. That's and an interesting the, helicopter. the Ospreys, which I guess are not eVTOL. They're, they're VTOL aircraft, but man, are those things stupidly loud. But they get an exemption. Yes. They can come and go if they please. They're, they're very <laughs> nice looking.
0: Because they, they only come in every once in a while and they're fun to look at. But the FAA did release what it's calling an updated blueprint for airspace and procedure changes to accommodate what they're calling air taxis. I hate that term. I'm going to stick with eVTOLs. You can't hail down an e-taxi. Come on. Yeah, the taxi thing bothers me. But eVTOLs or a more, I guess, catch-all urban air mobility. So these things that take off and land within a city. So the FAA released its updated blueprint to try and look at how they're going to integrate all of these new aircraft into the national airspace system. The FAA is saying the complexity of the corridors could increase over time from single one way paths to routes serving multiple flows of aircraft flying in both directions. And over time, these corridors could link an increasing number of routes between vertiports. So, dealing with where do you locate the takeoff and landing spaces? How do you Transit the aircraft? Are they on? Is it a one way street? Do they have multiple flows at different altitudes? Does that matter based on existing air traffic? Do you move air traffic? So, all of these things being updated by the FAA and various industry stakeholders. So, if you're in for some light reading, you can take a look at that updated blueprint, which is, it's not terribly long. It's less than fifty pages, but it's it's dense and technical, but interesting nonetheless, I think if you if you want to read it. Let's take a break here. And when we come back, we'll come back with our conversation with Jenny Kavanaugh at Cranfield Aerospace Solutions as we talk about other new things in development and coming to market. So we'll be back with our conversation with, with Jenny. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back. We are now joined by Jenny Kavanaugh, who is the Chief Strategy Officer for Cranfield Aerospace Solutions. She is here to join us to talk about the newly announced merger between Cranfield and britain the of Islander aircraft fame. Jenny, thank you so much for joining the program. Not a problem. Thank you for having me. So this is big news in a big way because we've been hearing about development of Zero carbon emissions aircraft. We've been hearing about development of zero carbon emissions propulsions project. But this merger is something that kind of you've decided to say, okay, let's bring it all under one roof. That's right. Yes. Tell us more about the thought process behind why a merger, why not just a partnership or along the other lines that we've seen so far.
2: So I mean, that's a good question, right? You can achieve a lot through partnerships. I think the difference between a general partnership and working with, you know, general collaboration versus actually merging is that in both situations, you tend to have mutual interests. But if you really want to galvanize yourselves around a common goal, and really drive towards achieving what you want to achieve, every part of both of those businesses have to be pointed in the same direction. And you can't do that unless you are all the same company. You know, I'm talking everything from the support of the current Islander operators, all the way through to the sales proposition and the flexibility of offering for the new hydrogen aircraft in years to come, all the way through to the sustainability of the supply chain, the decarbonisation of operations. You want to build yourself to be a sustainable aviation company. You can't do that just through collaboration. You have to get serious. And when you're bringing a new hydrogen propulsion technology to market of course you can retrofit aircraft but increasingly we were seeing two things coming from people we're speaking to operators and investors one was first of all you know how could you guarantee that production ramp up when you're two separate companies and you know if we are as successful as we want to be we see some significant ramp up of production happening and so if we are again pointed in the same direction we're focusing on, as one company, producing more aircraft. What do we need to do to invest to produce more aircraft to achieve our common goal? Again, you can't do that through collaboration. You can only do it when you're under one roof. And the second thing was that increasingly the number of operators we were talking to kind of loved the idea of the hydrogen propulsion. They loved the idea of the zero emissions. But when it really got down to the nuts and bolts, they started to pause when they started to realize that actually if you've got one company that's retrofitting and the other one providing the aircraft and you what if something goes wrong, how guaranteed is this retrofit that you're talking about? Where's the OEM in all of this? And so what we will now and we are now unique in this space what we will offer is an OEM-backed hydrogen propulsion solution based on an existing aircraft that's proven in the field but backed up with OEM guarantees after sales. Support and a production line. I mean, it's it's a perfect solution for us.
0: So let's take a step back and talk about what this goal actually is. So hmm. Cranfield is bringing the hydrogen propulsion solution. The development of that. Britain Norman has been building the Islander for. I mean, it feels like a hundred years, but but not quite <laughs> that long. Not it's a awesome. venerable aircraft. It's a wonderful aircraft that I've flown in more than once and. I don't think there's any way to, to describe it then. It's a hardy aircraft. It feels like you can fly it to basically anywhere that's a little more than rocky. You know, as long as there's a kind of a runway there, you can land an islander there. So the Britain Norman side is bringing the aircraft. Your Cranfield side is bringing the hydrogen propulsion solution, and you'll soon be one company and the goal is to have a hydrogen-powered islander available for sale by 2026, right?
2: That's the first step goal, yeah. So, so if, we, if we just take a step back and just understand what Cranfield Aerospace's ambitions are, just us, us as a separate company, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: So we are currently developing a hydrogen propulsion solution. But our ultimate ambition is to be an airframer. We are an aircraft company. We are not a propulsion company.
0: Mm. So
2: we have an ultimate ambition to design and manufacture clean sheet, zero carbon aircraft going into the regional sort of size eventually. So with that ambition, for us, merging with an existing OEM accelerates you know, our ability to do that. In terms of the common goal, the common goal for Brit Norman and us, at least you know, in the short to medium term, is absolutely what you said. Step one of that larger ambition of going to clean sheet aircraft based around zero carbon technology is to prove the propulsion system technology to prove the certification routes and also to prove the infrastructure, the airport and airline operations. And that's why we started with a small aircraft like the Islander. And so that common goal between us and Brit Norman is very much focused on getting that initial product into market, kick it all off and really knock down some of these major challenges that are in front of us and in front of the rest of the industry trying to do this. But also we will then be looking at, you know, what comes next? How do we move ourselves towards that much bigger ambition? And how can we use the existing Britain Norman product range to enable that, right? Does that help answer the question?
0: Certainly. I mean, where's the market for the Islander now? And where do you want to take the market with a zero emissions version of it? And then you said you wanted to scale up to a regional aircraft. I mean, there are no aircraft. So how do you develop that market? And where do you see it going over the next 5, 10, 15 years?
2: Oh, wow. That's two massive questions. Okay. So the first question- It, it about really the is. Islander.
0: I'm sorry. Well, we can take it <laughs> one at a time, by all means. <laughs>
2: so the, the first question about the Islander, You know, we chose the Islander aircraft extremely carefully when we started doing this. We knew, because we spent the past- 30 years doing complex modifications to aircraft. We understand, you know, that when you modify aircraft, especially this significantly, you're going to have an impact on its key performance criteria. We also knew that the Islander, people love it because of its ultra-stall capabilities. It's really short takeoff and landing, and we didn't want to mess with that, and we're not messing with that. So something had to give. We knew the range would be reduced, so what we needed to do was find an aircraft actually whose normal operation is in short hops, which is exactly what the Islander does. Now, it can fly 1,200 kilometres, but the vast majority of its operators don't fly it for that. They will fly it anywhere between two minutes and an hour. Mainly, you talk in 15 to 35 minutes, is your usual sort of legs for an Islander. And so, of course, once you've reduce the range by introducing this new heavier technology, you're not affecting the operations that much, because they already fly short hops. So the initial market will be, you know, certain islander operations that exist today, so coasts and between coasts and islands and between islands, and, and those short routes that are less than 200 kilometers. And the, to be clear, it's 200 kilometers plus diversion requirements, so it's, the operational range is 200, 200 kilometers. But we also see potential where at that distance you're only really going to compete with road if and rail, if the alternative is either really poor or it's not there at all. So where there is no road and rail, i.e. water, or where there is a very poor ground infrastructure, or it's highly congested, this is where this little aircraft can really serve a market. So for example, in very highly congested cities, when you can Like Los Angeles, for example, you could fly from one end to the other in one of these little things and not spend three hours sitting in a car. So we see the current operations, but also like a little super commuter as being the main markets.
0: So looking at those markets, the benefits of having kind of a zero emissions aircraft operating on those extremely high frequency, but low time routes between islands, from coasts to islands and things like that, that sounds really good. But then one of the questions that comes up immediately in my mind is, this is going to require new infrastructure on the ground. and Oftentimes, that's the most difficult part of the puzzle. So Is, is that something that you're working on as well coming from an OEM saying, we're going to have to help airports or, or airfields develop this? Or is that something that you're hoping comes along with the proposition that the aircraft itself brings?
2: So generally, in in my world of strategy, hope is not a great strategy. (laughs) So you have to take um, destiny into your own hands to some extent. Having said that, we are a small company and we understand the real value in focus and that you can't do everything. However, we are working very closely with certain airports and operators to understand what they will actually need on the ground to be able to bring these aircraft into service, we're not trying to create currently a, a one solution fits all thing for for these operators just yet. Until we have really understood what the operators and airports need, because what we are starting to learn is that actually it differs depending on where the operator is, what their ambition for investment is, you know, and also not not every airport has the appetite to become a fuel producer, which is essentially what you're asking them to do if they have to put electrolyzer on their airport and produce the hydrogen themselves. That comes with a whole load of liabilities that airports aren't usually used to dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, some are very happy to do that. And we are, and we are talking to, to airports at the moment who actually see this production of hydrogen and the use of renewable energy to produce that hydrogen in and around their airport as a great opportunity to become energy independent. And of course, where these, where these aircraft fly, more often than not are awash with renewable energy, or at least the opportunity to be so island communities, tidal wave, sun, wind. So yeah, we are currently focusing very much on those operators and airports who are showing a real interest in wanting to be the launch customers or one of the first and really understanding what help they need. But we're also working with the Civil Aviation Authority in the UK, fuel assurance institutions around the standards and regulations as well, because airports cannot plan what they need from an infrastructure point of view if the standards and regulations aren't in place. They don't know what safety zones they have to assume. They don't know the rules and regs around handling hydrogen, for example. So we are very much at the forefront of those conversations and driving that activity forward.
0: That's very interesting to me that thinking about the concept of going from an energy transfer center where you're not having to deal with anything more than really storage and transitioning to kind of an energy generation concept is a very interesting way to put it and, and something that, that I hadn't quite considered an airport necessarily viewing itself that way. And, and so, I think that that's really interesting that, that you're working with not only the, the operators, but the airports as, as well to kind of navigate that transition. From the nine-seat Islander up to kind of the, the stated ambition of a regional aircraft, where's the kind of step ladder to get there?
2: So we have a four-phase strategy at the moment. So we're in phase one at the moment. Phase two is increasing the performance of the aircraft, so increasing the size, the range, and switching to liquid hydrogen because gaseous hydrogen is great as a starting point, but because it has to be carried in very highly pressurised tanks, if you get much bigger than a nine- to 12-seat aircraft, you're going to struggle being, making it commercially viable with gaseous um especially working around a a current airframe right liquid hydrogen is most definitely the the solution that's going to decarbonize aviation it's it's the only technology that can can be zero emissions or or zero carbon at least in the larger aircraft so we, we want to understand that so that's phase two it'll probably still be a cs23 aircraft so still you know 19 seats and below and as i said we've got to work through with brit norman you know what, what we can do in terms of their existing their existing product line and whether we can base it on one of those. TBD, we'll see. Then moving on from there, that's when we want to go into CS25 in a, in a sort of 20 to 50 seat type of size. Um, so there, you know, we've got our aerospace doing their 30 seater, but, you know, it's that sort of ATR-42 type size aircraft. That would be phase three. And that's the first clean sheet. That's when we, we, we really start... Uh, designing the airframe to deal with hydrogen because hydrogen propulsion has such a significant impact on airframe design that retrofit working around kerosene-based aircraft is, is only going to get you so far if you want to be really competitive in the long term. So, and then we move on to the, to the larger regional, like your ER ATR-72-8 sort of type size aircraft. That's the step ladder from a technology perspective.
0: I know that this is certainly a not an exact answer or an exact science but what what's the thinking on the timeline for those phases
2: so thinking on the timeline is a later this decade we want to be on phase 2 getting that out there and then we're moving into you know the 2030s for phase 3 and then beyond 2035 for phase 4
0: so that seems to kind of align with some of the other efforts in in hydrogen propulsion coming from the likes of Heart, from Airbus is, is looking at, at at certain things. Do you see this kind of coalescing at this point? Because I, I mean, I would say two, maybe three years ago, this was all kind of all over the map. Maybe it'll work. This could work. This might work. But it seems to me over the last year and, and especially in the last six months, it feels like things are solidifying as far as the thinking around where these technologies are going to fall into place.
2: Yeah, I mean I think pretty much anybody who works in the in this you know sustainable aviation space would agree that liquid hydrogen is most definitely the long-term solution. For larger aircraft, it's most likely it will be combusted. Um up to 100 seats, depending on its use case, its mission, will depend whether it's fuel cells or combustion, but essentially the storage will be liquid hydrogen. And then the propulsion system, the thrust, will be either from a fuel cell or from a, from from combusting it directly in, in a in an engine. I think everybody agrees on that, and I think everybody also agrees that SAF needs to play its part as well, but that you do need both. So. Yeah, I think it is coalescing, and I think the timeframes of around the twenty thirty five is where we'll see a real explosion, if you, if you there's a really bad word to use in this context. But I think we'll I see a real flourishing of, of the technology starting to come to market around that mid-2030s timescale.
0: I'm certainly looking forward to seeing what comes of all of this and, and starting to fly on, on hydrogen-powered aircraft. I think it's a very exciting time and very excited to see how things go here. We've been talking with Jenny Kavanaugh, who is the Chief Strategy Officer at Cranfield Aerospace Solutions on their recent or recently announced and still ongoing merger with Britain Norman Aircraft. Jenny, thank you so much for chatting with us today.
2: Absolute pleasure.
0: Lovely to talk to you. Welcome back. The steps from you know a nine seat hydrogen powered islander to a one hundred seat proper regional aircraft that that's powered by hydrogen I think is going to be some of the most interesting developments in aerospace and to be around for that i'm I'm excited and it feels like it's actually kind of sort of real now.
1: It feels a whole lot more real than any electric powered aircraft that we've seen just because the technology and the energy density is so much further along than electric. This I'm more excited about it than SAFs. Let's put it that way. I mean, I think that goes without saying. Yeah, but well, it had to be said because it's it it just to be SAFs strange. is so boring and not a real solution by and large for the most part, but hydrogen is exciting. Still looking forward to seeing Airbus power an A380 with it one day. One day. Soon soon. Okay, let's close out the show with
0: some other product announcements and orders and we'll end the show on what I'm terming a sad note, but we'll get there when we get there. First things first, Air New Zealand has finally announced a little bit more detail on what's going on with the Sky Nest. So, finally coming not until next year. I'm a little salty about that still. But I am going to wait and, and hopefully try this out because it's coming to Air New Zealand flights from Auckland to Chicago and New York. So 16 and a half, 17 hours. You will get four hours in the rack. You can only book it for one sleeping period per flight, per person. You cannot sleep in there with anyone else. So you, you got to be in there by yourself. It's going to cost you between four and six hundred New Zealand dollars, so two hundred fifty to four hundred dollars in the U.S. There's going to be a thirty-minute break between sleeping arrangements, so that the staff can change out all of the bedding and refresh the area for you. You're going to have a USB port, a reading light, special relaxation
1: lights, and an air vent. They specifically I mentioned was going to get an there. air vent. It's not in the show notes. I couldn't be sure.
0: Oh, sorry. So, no, I kind of left
1: it out because I wanted to like make you feel good about it. Because well, I the last you item you it. put, the last Airbus. bullet point says, pilots will do a barrel roll to get you out of bed. That's probably not true, but I am excited Can about I get the air vents, which is true. You might have gotten it. I think it's actually an LR on roll. So, it's oh, a big oh. difference. Yeah. My, yeah. my apologies. My yeah, apologies. You got to get that right. You'll get called out for getting that wrong. But this is – Exciting. Four hours is longer than I would have thought. The up, I guess the purchase fee for it, anywhere from $250 to $400, is not outrageous. I would probably pay on the lower end of that 250 to 300, because four hours is a decent amount of time on a flight that, how long is it? 16 hours, 15 hours? 16 and a half, 17 hours. Yeah, something It's a like that. long flight. So, you're looking at, what, there's six of the beds, three on each side. So, you'll probably get about a little under maybe 20 passengers getting the chance to use this per flight, give or take. So, that's definitely going to be a first come first serve basis. And I'm, I'm sure this will be hot seller and some passengers will get shut out of it. But man, at some point, the upgrade here between economy and premium economies or Skynast is going to become real close. But even in premium economy, you don't get that full lying down bed experience. So I like it. I'm not sure the price is totally right. $400, $100 an hour to lie down on a flight. I don't know. I don't know if I'd pay that. It'll be interesting to see how it works out and the changes they make based on that. And how many walk-up passengers they get. Like, how many passengers are going to preemptively do this before booking? And how many passengers eight hours into this flight will be so desperate to lie down, they will just hand yeah. the flight attendant their credit card and say, charge me. I don't care what it is. I want a bed. Whatever it is. Whatever the – Whatever <laughs> can it Can I costs. get the whack
0: rate? Yeah. That's a really good question. I assume Air New Zealand's hoping for the latter. They'll make more money on it. Speaking of Air New Zealand, Air New Zealand has brought their last 777 out of storage home from California. They flew it from California, hopscotched it across the Pacific to Singapore where it's been for a month undergoing a D check. That is over. It is back in Auckland. They have all of their sevens back and ready to go. All right. Good stuff. Recovery. A couple other order announcements that are worth noting. Philippine Airlines has ordered nine 350 That puts its longest flights, which are those to the east coast of the US, back in its sights. So that'll be interesting to see what new routes come about because of that order. China Airlines has exercised its options for eight 787-9s, though those are also Can possibly be converted to 787 10s if they so choose. So that'll be interesting to see which way they go there. But those options have been exercised. And then Airbus released its order figures for the previous month. And the only interesting thing is that someone,
1: we don't know who, but someone bought an A330 800 Neo. A private customer, not an undisclosed customer. There were some other undisclosed 320 Neo deals, but an A380-800 to a private customer, that's a very interesting aircraft pickup. Not A380. ah, I I even typed that mistake earlier today. (laughs) A330-800, I make that mistake because it's just such a a rare aircraft. That would be something. But an A330-800 for a private customer, very interesting aircraft type to pick up for an ACJ don't know who. I guess we'll find out eventually. Yeah. We'll we'll find out when they paint it.
0: I wish it was me. That would be great. So We close the show with – It's not sad news to anyone but Inevitable news. It's inevitable news for sure. Canadian North has retired its last 737-200 combi with the gravel kit.
1: Oh, that plane historically could land just about anywhere it could land, take off, do whatever you needed it to do. It
0: was just fun to watch, but that is officially gone now. They retired it the end of last week. It first flew this particular aircraft, the registration was CGDPA, and it first flew with Dome Petroleum in 1980. Oh, wow. And spent its entire life, interestingly enough, same registration, and obviously operating throughout Canada for multiple Canadian airlines, finally ending up with Canadian North, and it's now been retired from from Canadian North. The aircraft is, they retired them basically because they said, well, it's kind of hard to maintain a 43-year-old plane, especially in the condition we need it because we need it to be able to go to unimproved runways and things like that. And not only was it, Becoming very difficult to service the engines. They said it was also becoming difficult to service the gravel kit, which I thought was interesting.
1: Mm, that is interesting. And like you pointed out, there cannot be many aircraft, if any, out there in the world that are 43 years old and have never had a registration change. That is exceptionally rare. And it's not like this aircraft didn't change hands, it started at Dome Petroleum went to Pacific Western Airlines and Canadian Airlines and Air Canada and Canada North and somehow maintained that one registration its entire life. That is exceptional. And I was impressed by that.
0: Yeah, I, yeah,
1: I was impressed by that. Now you'll just have to fight, suffice for the uh, seven three three hundred. Not quite the same. Yeah, yeah, the seven three three hundred and the ATR that they're operating. So. They've got other 73s. They've got the 400 and the 700s. No, no, the, They are, do. They no, do. No, but if, the, yeah, those for, are not for this particular mission.
0: Yeah. They're replacing this particular aircraft and the other 737-200s with the kind of the ATRs operating where you would see the Yeah. It's just not the, the same. 200s I mean, there have been 18 737-200s in operation around the world in the last month. And most of those are in Canada nearly all. There's a couple in the US and there's one in South Africa.
1: Yeah. Got to wonder what happens with these off-the-beaten-path airlines in the future, when they cannot operate any of these 7.3 Classics or 320 COs, where at some point, their only option will be the next generation, not NG, but the newer generation engine aircraft, the, the MAXs and the NEOs, that if you – seemingly these days, if you look at them the wrong way, they'll break. But They don't build them like they used to. They don't make airplanes like this that can go anywhere and do anything. So, Man, 20, 30 years from now, I don't know what airlines like this will, will have in their fleet to operate missions like this because there's really nothing out there to replace a 737-200 with a gravel kit.
0: Well, maybe it's time we started building our own airplanes. Powered by hydrogen, maybe sure. Why not? Could be. Maybe. Well, we're gonna go figure that out, and we'll leave this episode here for our dear listeners. This has been episode two hundred and fifteen of AV Talk. I am Ian Pechnik here as
1: always with Jason Rubinowitz. Thanks for listening.